There we go. Happy Easter, everyone. Now, if you have your Bibles, go with me to Luke 15. Uh, Luke 15, while you're flipping there, uh, my name is Gabe. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, we have a couple others, um, which I think we only have one presently here. Where's Jeremy? Okay, we have no other elders in here, so I can say whatever I want. Here we go. Uh, do I? Oh, yeah, Matt's an elder. There he is. I forgot that. Sorry, Matt. Um, as you're flipping to Luke 15, um, I just want to say welcome. I know that we have some visitors here, some families coming in to visit. Uh, we're just really excited that you're here. We could celebrate Easter together as a family. Um, the way we kind of do things here as far as a teaching standpoint, we just pick, pick a book of the Bible and, and go straight through it. Um, line by line, we feel like that's the most helpful way for us to study Scripture. Um, and today, it's happened to land on, um, coincidence or providence, one of the most beautiful Scriptures uh, there is that explains the Gospel. It just portrays it perfectly, I think, in Luke 15. Um, and so here's, here's my, uh, my question or my, my favor going into this. Um, I know a lot of us have grown up in church. We've heard the story of the prodigal son preached, explained, um, exegeted, whatever you want to say. Um, but I'm praying this morning that the same prayer I've had for the last couple weeks as I've been preparing, that we would just see this with some fresh eyes this morning, um, that the gospel should never be stale. Amen. We should always come with a fresh perspective. We should always marvel at what Christ has done for us. Uh, and so that's what we're going to hop into Luke 15. Um, we'll pick it up in verse 11. So while you're flipping there, let me ask just a, a quick question as a way of introduction. Uh, what is the first thing you do when you get home? Just curious. What is the first thing, when you walk in the front door, what is the first thing that happens that takes place? Uh, for some of and we're about to get really close here in a second. Um, some of you are going to go, ah, never mind, I'm going to leave mid-sermon because I can't believe the pastor just said that, but welcome to the branch. Uh, some of us, we come in, we, we have like an organized cubby where we put our book bag and we put our, our briefcase and we make sure everything is clean and perfect, right? Any of you guys? Weirdos? Nope. Uh, some of us come in and just throw stuff everywhere. We sit down on the couch just for five minutes before we turn on dinner and watch a little bit of The Office. Any of you guys? Okay. Now, just in all transparency, and this is where I'm going to lose about half of you, and I understand. Um, who else, when you first walk in the door, the first thing you do is start taking clothes off? Anyone else? Okay. Uh, first thing, I mean, just being honest, TMI, the first thing I do when I walk into the house is my pants come off, done. doesn't matter. I mean, the, fir the moment I walk in, is this Easter? What am I talking about? So um, we, as a church, we have a culture of hospitality. I mean, I've just loved watching this culture grow. Um, people can come over to our house whenever. We tell people, especially our RMC meets at our house most Friday nights, and I get irritated if people knock on the door. I'm like, just come in. And that's the way a lot of our families treat their houses. Like, man, it's open door policy. Come in. But if I don't know that you're coming, it would behoove you to knock on the door. Because uh, I can assure you there's going to be some article of clothing that's missing off of me. Um, so here's just the perfect case in point. This is where it all, like, when this happened, I'm like, this has got to work its way into the sermon. It's too good not to. But Friday morning, uh, for those that don't know, we're starting a church in Milledgeville in August. Um, so Kyle and Jennifer are going to be moving down there to plant that church. Um, 64 days, right? 59 until they move. So it's coming close. 
Um, and so I was at Milledgeville Thursday night hanging out with these guys, got home about 1.30 on uh, Friday morning. So Friday is typically the day I, I let my wife have the day off and I'll keep the kids so she can uh, keep her sanity. And so uh, I was tired, kind of whatever, so half sleeping on the couch, definitely watching the kids, but like half sleeping on the couch. Uh, my two-year-old has learned to open the door. Um, so here I am, and I mean, just all transparency, just laying in my underwear on a Friday morning, uh, the knock on the door. So I stand up like what do I do I don't have time to get to the bedroom all the while just slow motion I see my daughter running to the front door before I could say anything Emerson just opens the door so here I am face-to-face encounter there's two guys in a suit and I'm sitting here in my birthday suit not really I'm in my underwear just the most awkward I mean it felt like an eternity of man what do we do now right so like just slowly started walking and just closed the door. Like that was it. That was the whole interaction. Uh, later went out to the front porch to see, uh, it was Jehovah's Witness that were coming by to invite me to their gathering. Uh, and so it's just, that was that, right? Uh, so say all that to say, we all have these tendencies. When we get to our home and we get to a safe place, um, we know it's a safe place because of what we do, how we act, that we let our guards down. We all have this environment. I know we have a wide array of environments and, and upbringings. So for some of you, your actual home growing up was never this place was never the place that you felt safe, was never the place that you felt secured or loved for, but you had that place. There was that environment that you could go to uh, where you felt like you could take every guard down that you could sit around in your underwear and it didn't matter. And so what we see this morning through scripture is this idea of home, that we have a father that is desperately wanting us to come home. And this home is represented by the presence of the father. So it's not about the house, it's not about the building, it's not about the property, but it's that when you get in the same environment with the Father, you can let all your guards down. It's finally a place where you feel safe and secured and loved on and taken care of. And again, it's not because it's any special room, just like, yes, we are a church gathered in a gym. It's not the room that makes it special. It's the present. So what we're going to study this morning is this, this home idea that the Father is desperately pleading for us to come home. So Luke 15 is where we're going to pick up. Um, in, in Luke 15, the whole chapter is three parables. Now, we covered two of them last week, which was the lost sheep and the lost coin. Uh, and with this parable, um, the, the shepherd left the 99 sheep to go find the one, that the lady left her nine coins, turned on the lamp in the middle of the night to, to turn her whole house upside down to find this lost coin. And and where this is coming from, the last verse in Luke chapter 14 um, says that he who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus was teaching to a crowd about 20,000 people, which if you stacked people within a football field, that would be two football fields stacked shoulder to shoulder of people. That's just the image of how many people Jesus was teaching to. And Luke chapter 14 is a brutal one. The cost of discipleship, what does it really mean to follow Christ? It means uh, ahead of all your possessions, ahead of all your friends, and even ahead of your own life. You have to count all of those things as rubbish to follow after Christ and be his disciple. In the end of Luke 14, he says, he who has ears let him hear come draw in so you can imagine this crowd of 20,000 people just dissipated down to probably a thousand or so in Luke 15 the chapter or verse 1 opens with you have the Pharisees and the religious people the ones that have everything figured out that are doing everything perfect 
And then you've got the sinners and the tax collectors. A clear, divisive group of, of the self-righteous and the sinners. The ones that knew everything and the ones that knew nothing. But both of these crowds drew into Jesus. So Jesus is addressing these parables to the religious guys because they are um, flabbergasted that Jesus would actually sit down and eat with sinners, that he would actually spend time with those that are maybe not like him. The religious leaders would never do that. So he tells the first two parables, and now we break into the second one. So we'll pick it up in verse 11. Chloe, did I offend you by my underwear comment? I'm sorry. Verse 11. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, we're just going to read a verse, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit, because Jesus is a master storyteller. I mean, these stories just penetrate to the heart of the people. They penetrate to our heart now, 2,000 years later. But there's a little bit of subtle cues that we're going to miss out on because we don't understand culturally that day. Um, there's, there's just some different things like inheritance. Do we often think about the inheritance that we're going to get? Is that something that our mind naturally gravitates? No, it's not anything big. The other big social cue that we miss out on is a culture of honor. I mean, have you guys ever been around an environment of like tweens and teenagers talking to their parents? Holy cow. I'm just saying I've got four kids. If any of my kids talk to me the way I see other teenagers talk to their kids, we might go down to three or two or one right? I mean, just this culture of being able to talk back to your parents is never allowed. There's such a culture of honor um, in the New Testament time with the Jewish people that you can never speak to your father this way. So for the son, the younger son, to come to him and say, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Uh, In that day, the dad could have said, that's funny, come here. And we would have never heard of the young son again. Just disappeared that quickly. But that's not what happened. Uh, we pick it up second part of verse 12. And he divided his property between them. So you've got the older son and you've got the younger son. And, and the way that money was made, the way that status was um, compiled in these days was land, right? You're not a man unless you got land. I think that's an old Jewish thing. Uh, or from O Brother Where Art Thou. But, but the, seriously, like land is how you became rich. It's how you farmed. It's how you created a livelihood for yourself. And so uh, for the father to give the inheritance away, he had to sell some land. He had to sell some pop- property. So this wasn't some overnight deal. And also when they say that, that the older son would always receive double the inheritance. So if there's only two sons, math majors, you can help me with this. Uh, the older son would receive two-thirds of the inheritance because it's double what the son, younger son would get, which is one-third. So the father had to get rid of one-third of his property, one-third of his animals, one-third of everything, and give it to the younger son. It's not some easy process. It's not like, mm, let me just write you a check and, and here you go. This is painful. This is the father going, you would rather have this stuff than me. You would rather me be dead than spend time with me. This is just a painful, brutal conversation that just takes place. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Anyone surprised? Anyone surprised that someone that's so foolish to go to his father and say, I wish you're dead, I could do this better, would go away and squander everything and waste anything, right? I mean, there's not many people that read that and go, oh, surprise. 
But we have to put our mind in the Jewish leaders that are here in this parable going, that is awful. What kind of father would have given everything to his son? And what kind of son would be allowed to breathe after that conversation? I mean, as this parable is going on, the Jews are just getting furious with this story. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So we just, I mean, there's so much happening in here. Uh, just to be honest, I could preach this for like 14 hours. I know it's Easter, so like if you guys could just give me a little bit more leniency, we might go a little long. Uh, but it's Easter, don't complain. So uh, what's happening here is the fact that this Jewish boy is so broke and is so desperate for food and shelter and clothing that he results to feeding pigs. Now, uh, that probably doesn't mean anything to us, but for a Jewish boy to get into the same arena as pigs was the lowest of low. There's no, there's no farther for this Jewish boy to fall. For this younger son to get into and be jealous of what the pigs are eating. Because that's the rule, man. The, the pig was unholy. You can't touch it. And now you're eating with the pigs. Now you're longing for the food that the pigs eat. That you're so hungry that that's where your mind goes to. Now, some of us in this room, as we're sharing this parable, as we're reading through, understand this, that we've been to that breaking point, that we've gone so far away from God and his home, his plan for us, that when it might not be pigs, it might be drugs, it might not be um, this rebellion, it's your rebellion, but we understand, we can empathize we know, man, I'm, I'm the younger son. I have ran. I have rebelled shamelessly to the point where there's, there's nowhere else for me to go. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Now, this is conjecture here. This is just a thought that I have. But how many times do you think as he's starving, as he's feeding these pigs, as his life is unraveling, the thought keeps coming in his mind, if I just go home, man, if my father will take care of me, if I just go home, no, no, don't think about that. I know my father loves me, but don't think about that. I can do this. I'm on this. I've got it. I've got it in control. I think a point of maturity for all of us is when we try to do things on our own, we think, I've got this, I can do it. I see it all the time in my kids now, that they think they're mature enough, they think they can handle this on their own. And I'm like, yeah, sure, pick up that 50-pound TV, let's see what happens, right? I'm just kidding, I don't let my kids pick up TVs. They pick up two of them. So we all kind of face this like maturity where we think we've got it and we want to keep pushing our father. We would keep pushing wisdom out of our life, but we finally get to a point of, I can't fix this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And so he says, listen, how many of my father's hired servants have it better than me? I mean, if I just go home, my father can fix this. If I just go home... Verse 18, I will rise and go to my father and I will say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. The Greek of this against heaven um, kind of goes back to the Old Testament, this phrase, my sins pile up to the heavens. My sins are so great that they go from the earth to the heavens. That's the amount of sins I have. Verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he starts this, okay, like, it's, I'm done here, I'm, I'm going home, but there's some, some crucial things we have to understand. Uh, th- the first is that he's going home, right? That he knows that when he gets home, when he gets with the Father, that everything's going to be better. The, the thought, the rebellion that left him from the home in the first place was this idea, I know better, I can do this on my own, when I get on my own, I'll be fine, so I'm gone, And now he's resoluting to go back and to be a hired servant. So for this father, he was a rich landowner. He was a rich farmer. He had cattle and all the like. And so he would have his sons who would help run, but underneath that they would have slaves that would live on the property, that would have all the portions they needed. They'd have shelter, they would have food, they would have clothes. But then underneath them were the hired servants. And these are like the day laborers. They were only hired if they needed something. So they had no shelter, they had no food, they had nothing. If they work, they could provide for themselves. But if they didn't work, they had nothing. And so the son is going, I'm not even going to be a slave. Put me in the lowest of low position, father. But the other fact is that he's going to make money. A slave wouldn't make much money, but a labored hand would. And the thought is, if I go back and I start working for my father as a hired hand, I can pay him back. I can work until I pay back my debt. And I don't know about you guys, but I've been in conversations with many people, and I've felt this myself, that because of my sins, I owe the Father something. Because of my sins, if I walk back, if I pursue Christianity again, I've got to pay him back. I've got to do whatever it takes. I've, I've got a debt. I've got to fill it. So the son's going, listen, this, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to come back as a hired servant because I know I've messed up, and I've got to pay my Father back. So that's his plan, verse 20. And he arose and he came back to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced and kissed him. He had compassion for him. He had compassion for him. This word mercy is here. He had compassion. He showed mercy. What that means is he's not giving the son what he deserved. So for the son to come back into this environment, here's what tradition would say. That traditionally, if the son would have done something like this, he would have to sit at the gate of his father's property and he could be ridiculed, he could be mocked, he could be beaten by anybody that walked by. Because everyone in the small community knows the shame that this son brought to the family. So the father would see him and he would sit at his gate until the father would come up with a punishment, a plan for him. So he would sit there day after day begging for food, getting mocked, getting beaten. Anybody in the town could have their way with this man until the the father felt like the punishment was enough. And then the father would bring him in and say, okay, now that you've had all that punishment, here's what you must do for me. You must be a slave for 15 years. You must this and this and this. And if you complete all of this, then you can be my son again. Now, for a lot of us, we would actually be okay with that, right? Whatever it takes, Father, I'm I'm coming home and I know there's going to be punishment to take place. I'm in. I will work my way there. Uh, There was one time I went to Georgia Southern. I was fishing. I thought I was this big hot rod. Took some guys fishing with me. Um, Here's the things I didn't quite realize. This was my first big fishing trip on my own. Uh, That you need a fishing license. Didn't really realize that. That you had to have life preservers in your boat. 
didn't quite realize that, um, in that uh, you had to have the boat registered. I blame my dad for that one because it was his boat, right? So two out of three were my fault. So I, we got back from fishing, didn't catch anything. At least I knew how to work a spinner rod, though. And so we, we came back in, and guess who was waiting for me? The game warden. So I, I pull it up, and I built this really elaborate rig to put the John boat on the back of the truck. And so I'm sitting here, and, I, and here's the basic conversation. Sir, I don't have any money. I'm a poor college kid, but you can work me all you want. Surely you've got property around here. Uh, surely, like, there's national forest. There's, there's game land. Just, just let me work for you. Let me work this off. Because here's what I knew. I was in the wrong. And I had to add debt to pay. I had no money, so let me work this off. And a lot of us carry that same burden with Christianity. I know I'm sinful. Just let me work for it. Let me earn my way back into your good graces. But the Father doesn't do that. He runs after him partly to protect him, because those that love the father were ready to hop on this kid. They're ready to beat him in the square, and so the father runs after him, has compassion, falls on him, kisses him, sings, prays, loves the son that's now home. All in his pig slop and nastiness, the father falls on him. Now again, contextually, we don't understand the father running because sometimes we run, right? It's not that weird for me to go run with my kids, but Jewish men in that day never ran. One of the crazy laws on the Sabbath, that if a bird came up underneath your tunic and your robe, you just had to go sit down and like kind of trap the bird in between your legs until the Sabbath was over. Then you could lift up and get the bird and eat it because it was so unlawful for you to pick up your robe just a little bit to get a bird out uh, on the Sabbath because men did not show their ankles. How weird is that, the sidebar? I'm going to sit here. What are you sitting for? You tired? Nope. Got a bird between my legs. Like, that's just awkward. Uh, but So that's what would happen. I mean, that's how serious they were about not showing their ankles that if you had a bird climbed under your robe, you have to sit there for the day. And the father forgets all of that and runs after his son, pursues his son. Verse 21, the son starts his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring him quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This robe is the best robe that the father owns. This ring is a signet ring. They didn't sign contracts in these days. They had the family crest on the ring. So that now the son could sign, could dip his ring in wax and sign as part of the family. The servants and the hired hands did not have shoes. Only the sons had shoes. Everything was made right again, plus some. The father had compassion. He showed mercy. And now we see grace. Mercy being that he showed the son what he didn't deserve, right? He did not, what he deserved was judgment. What he deserved was punishment. But the father said, no, forget that. But now the son is getting uh, more of what he didn't deserve, which is grace. Here's the robe. Here's the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate because they'd had a funeral. They thought the son was dead and now he's alive. He was gone, but now he's home. He showed mercy, not getting what he deserved. And he showed grace by giving him what we don't deserve. 
Now, as we celebrate Easter, as we talk about Easter, if we're a believer in the room, man, this is our story, amen? This is what we recognize. This is what we're preaching. This is the gospel that we understand, that no matter where you've gone, no matter what you've done, you can always come home. The Father's going to welcome you. He's going to pour mercy and grace upon you. Please just come home. You don't have to do this anymore. It doesn't matter what your sins have led you to. Just come home. This is what we're pleading with you this morning. If you're running, if you're rebelling, come home. doesn't matter your sin. doesn't matter your transgressions. There's a father that's going to run to you. He's going to kiss you. He's going to give you the best robe, the ring symbolizing your family. Put shoes on your feet. This fattened calf could kill up to 200 people. So there's going to be a party going on when you come home. So we see this end, and, and if, if the story ended here, it would be incredible, right? So the Jews and the, and the religious ones in this crowd are getting frustrated, but, but the sinners and the tax collectors are probably up on their feet clapping because they know that's them, that they're able to come home. But that's only Act 1. Pick it up at Act 2, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. Now, again, we just have to take a step back. If the son, the younger son is gone and took one-third of the inheritance, that means all that's left is this older son's inheritance. So literally everything that is there, everything that is present is going to be the older son's. So where do we find the son? Out in the field, working, not rebelling, not doing anything blatant sin. He's there. He's working hard. Verse 26. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now, I don't know your relationship with your family and your brothers and sisters, but, uh, but if, if, you're, if you thought your brother was dead and now he's home, do you think you would celebrate you think you would high-five the slave? You think you would drop your rake and run and go pursue your brother and give him a big old hug and let's party, let's celebrate. I literally genuinely thought you were dead and here you are in front of me. I'm just gonna keep holding you for a while because I thought you were dead. That would typically be a response, but verse 26 tells a different story. But he was angry and refused to go in. Uh, this in the Greek, this, this idea is called Pouty McPowderson, right? That he just had no bearing. He said, no, I'm, I'm angry that I'm not going in. Forget this guy. And we'll see why. That's not Greek, just so you know. Just clarify. His father came out and treated to him, verse 29, but he answered his father, look, look, father, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he can't even call him his brother anymore. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So now we start to see the other side of the coin. The younger brother rebelled. The oldest brother had his morals. Said, so listen, listen, you, you owe me something. Look at what I've done. Now, I'll just be honest, in this, the culture that we have in the South, the Bible Belt, yes, I meet a few rebellious people, 
that I'm trying to convince to come home, that home is where you belong, that what you're seeking for uh, is, is always found in the presence of Jesus. There's a saying that says that, that secretly every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. That we're constantly looking for everything else, but the hunger, the fire in our belly is only satisfied through Christ. But I meet a ton of the people on the other side. I meet a ton of the elder brothers, the older brothers that have grown up in church, they think they've done everything right, and somehow through the mix of all this, they start to think that God owes them something. That look at what I've done for you is a phrase that starts to come out. I've never done this, I've, I've never done that. Look, look what I've done for you, God, and this is how you repay me. I never even got a goat, but he gets the calf. I've worked hard, I've never rebelled, and this is how you repay me, verse 31. And he said to him, son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours, which is true. Verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and is found. Now Jesus is a master storyteller, but what he does here is just cruel. I mean, he totally leaves us hanging, cliffhanger. Does the elder brother walk into the house and celebrate? We never know. He just leaves it there. So, so here's just some, some things that we have to understand. The two brothers, the two people, are represented by all of us in this room this morning, that we all gravitate to one side or the other. The, the younger brother's self-discovery. I'm going to live for me. Truth is up to me. It's about finding what makes me happy and brings me joy. God wants me to be happy. So I'm gonna do all of this because, I mean, I know just God loves me and wants me to be happy. So, so self-discovery is for me. I'm gonna try everything. I'm gonna do everything. I'm gonna find what brings me joy. This is what the younger brother did. So this is the sin on this end. But the older brother was walking in sin too. It was moral conformity. That I'm gonna follow the rules. I'm gonna do everything that's right. That my way to earn into heaven, my way to earn God's favor is to follow all the rules, do everything right, work hard. But what Jesus is telling this parable to the Pharisees and to the sinners is they're both wrong. That, that neither of them are inside the home, right? That the younger brother was gone. He was miles away from the home and the father was pleading for him to come home. And the younger brother was out in the field and the father was pleading for him to come home. But neither of them were home. So if you're putting all your bank in the fact that God is gonna love you no matter what you do and that I'll, get, I'll come home eventually but God just wants me to be happy now, you're, you're not home. You're searching and I'm telling you to come home. But for the other, other side of us, the ones that want everything to look good, that cannot imagine that a pastor stood up here and talked about being in his underwear, that offended you, you might want to start, I'm just kidding, that's too offensive. But that you might want to start to consider that if you've grown up in church, if you know rights and wrongs, and, and you focus more on that, when you walk into restaurants, when you meet people, the first thing that you do is run them through a filter. How are they spiritually? Are they good? Is their shirt tucked in? Is everything good? How many times do you do a quiet time? Tell me what books you're reading. That guy, you need to burn those books, right? Like we all have these filters that we go through and we're running them through a moral filter, but Jesus is going, no, listen, th there's a middle ground and neither of you are home. So, so how do you come home then for the older brother and the younger brother? The first thing is we have to understand the initiating love of the father. 
the father went running to the younger son and the father went out to the field with the older son. That he initiated, the father always initiates his love for us. We see that so clear in Easter, right? That father sent his son. The second part is that we need to learn what repentance really looks like to come home. For the younger brother, he needed to repent that all that he had done that he thought was going to lead to happiness never did. And the older brother needed to repent from all the right that he's done never brought him home either. So we've got sense of commission and sense of omission. We've got straight out rebellion and we've got straight up pride. But both of those are keeping us from being home. And the last thing is melt and moved or be melted and moved by what it costs to bring us home melted and moved by what the Father did to bring us home. Now, if, if you're a thinker like me, here, here's something that, that's probably rubbing you wrong, and I've pondered this and considered this for many years. You've got the sin, I mean, sorry, sin. You've got the parable of the lost sheep, that the shepherd left the 99 sheep to go after the one. You've got the lost coin that the woman forgot everything and pursued this coin, but why didn't anyone pursue the brother? What happened to the, the theme of the story that, that someone pursued the sheep, someone pursued the coin, but the brother had to land on itself? The brother just had to wait and wrestle around in pig mud until something brought him back. Why didn't anyone pursue the brother? Who would have done it? Would it have been the role of the father? No. As the Pharisees and religious leaders are walking away from this parable, here's what they know the elder brother should have gone. The older brother should have pursued the younger brother. The father would have said to the elder brother, listen, I don't know what's gotten into your brother, but you need to go get him. You need to pursue him. You need to go after him. And I'm sure just based on history, that conversation took place. But, but here's what the elder brother knew. And here's what we have to understand what's happening in this story. Because the elder brother knew that the younger brother has taken his one-third of inheritance. So everything that's left is his. So if the younger brother were to come home, whose robe is he putting on? The elder brother's. Whose ring is the younger brother about to wear? The elder brother's. Whose sandals is he about to put on? The elder brothers. Whose fattened calf is this young rebellious brother about to eat? It's the elder brothers. It was all his. See, here's what we start to misunderstand about this idea of grace and mercy and love. Is that God is all of those, but he's also just. That for him to forgive a sin does not mean that it's just forgiving. The penalty has to be paid. I've done this before and it's, my kids just aren't old enough to understand this. But when I've tried to teach my older daughter what grace is, I'll say, hey, Auburn, listen, I'm not going to punish you, but instead I'm going to punish your brother. What did he do? Nothing. But the penalty of your sin has to be paid for. So instead of giving it to you, I'm going to give it to your brother. No, 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 Dad, you can't do that. That's not fair. No, what's not fair is sin being unpunished, right? I mean, how many of you have been angry before because you got pulled over and your friend got a warning and you got a ticket? Anyone else? I think Elena agrees. 
right? I mean, we've, we've all had that experience. And what is the phrase that comes out of our mouth? That's not fair. That's not just. So we start to see the injustice start to ravel out here where the elder brother does not pursue the younger brother because he's so selfish that he does not want to give up his things for this younger brother because he's a fool. This younger brother deserves to desire. He deserves what he gets because he ran off from the father. What Jesus is leaving in the air, lingering for us, for the Pharisees, for the sinners, for the tax collectors, is that Jesus is the better elder brother. Flip with me over to John 6 really fast as we start to land the plane. Jesus is this elder brother for us. If you don't have a Bible or own a Bible, we've got some around on the floor, but please take one. We want you to have it. There's, the scripture will be on the screen as well. John 6, pick it up in verse 38. John 6, pick it up in verse 38. This is Jesus speaking. For I, Jesus, have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of whom who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, if we take this phrase and put it in the mouth of the elder brother, what do we get? This is the will of my Father who sent me to rescue all that have gone astray. And what this means for me is that I have to take the robe off and put it on my younger brother. I have to take my sandals off and put it on my younger brother. I have to take the ring off my finger and give it to my younger brother. Is this fair? No. I mean, this is when we start thinking about what Christ did for us. Just blows my mind. I mean, you take Jesus up in his last days where he's getting beaten, he's getting mocked, he's getting ridiculed, and he's thinking in his mind, I've done nothing wrong. I mean, he could have stopped any of that at any time. But in the parable and from Jesus' own mouth, his will is to do the will of his Father. That his Father sent him from heaven to earth with a mission to bring home many sons and daughters for my glory, to go rescue your younger brother and don't come home until you have. Bring them home. Jesus, is this gonna cost you? Yeah, it's gonna cost you everything. It's gonna cost you your robe, your share of your inheritance, your sandals, your ring. It's gonna cost you everything. But this is the son's role. This is the will of the Father for Jesus, the better elder brother, to go pursue, to go rescue, and bring back to the Father, which is his. To bring the rebellious, the rebellious from blatant sin and the rebellious from pride, to bring them home together once again. So when we study and we think about Easter, we think about the cross, what does this mean? It means Hebrews and Romans both spells it out. That Jesus, the better elder brother, has taken our place. He has come here to rescue us, to bring us home. He's counted the cost. He knows that it's going to cost him everything. So he went to the cross. He died. I don't care what Discovery Channel says. He died. They pierced his side. Blood and water hit the ground, rushing out, died. 
And on Saturday, nothing happened. We waited. We longed for the Savior to come back. And on Sunday morning, the stone was rolled away. Right? I mean, how, how magical is this? Now put ourselves back in this parable that we are all the sons and daughters that have rebelled. We're all the ones that have ran away. And our elder brother Jesus said, no matter what the cost is, he can have everything that I have. I'm gonna take my jacket of righteousness off and put it on my younger rebellious brother. I'm gonna take the shoes off my feet that I have earned and I'm gonna give them to my younger rebellious brother. I'm gonna take this ring off of my finger, symbolizing that you're part of the family. I'm gonna put it on my younger, rebellious brother. I'm gonna show grace, I'm gonna show mercy. And where's this punishment, this sin that must go punished? Where's it gonna go? I'll take it for him, Dad. Father, give me that punishment. I'll give everything up if my younger brother can come back home, can come back to the family. So my question for us this morning is, have you come back home? Do you understand what your elder brother did for you? Do you understand what the father commanded of the elder brother Jesus to go rescue, to go bring back your sons and daughters, no matter what the cost, no matter what the penalty, bring them home. Bring them to the kingdom, bring them back to me. And listen, not to oversimplify it, but there's two types of people in this room. There's the types that we read this and we resonate and we celebrate. When we take communion in a minute, we take it because we believe it and we accept what God has done on our behalf. And then there's those that just have not quite come home yet. That you won't take communion because communion really means nothing to you yet. And listen, I'm, I'm grateful that both of us are here. That is why we gather. That is why we live on mission. That is why we're still here because we're still pursuing. God is still using us to, to win back many sons and daughters for him. But have you considered that for us to celebrate the Father, to dance, to eat, and to be merry, it cost our elder brother his life? That he died so that we could dance. Have you considered this? That when we take communion, the reason we're doing it is because he died so that he could put the jacket, the robe of righteousness on us that he suffered so that we can sing here, that he suffered, he bled, he died so that we can sing and that we can rejoice. He was made nothing so that we could be made whole. That is what the Father did for us by sending his Son to rescue us and to ransom us. So my question is, are you home? I mean, do you have a place where you're fully known and you're fully loved? Where there, you know there's nothing that can separate you from that home, from the love of the Father? Where you sleep well at night knowing that the world might fall apart, but I am home and I'm okay. If you're not, man, don't be like the younger brother that has to rebel, that has to wait, that has to get to the point where there's no other option other than coming back. Listen to the Father's plea for you to come home. So let's pray. Father, as we think about what this day means, Jesus, we think that this, this isn't some fairy tale, this isn't some story 
Father, it's historical proof that you suffered and you bled and you died. Jesus, we know that the Father sent you to this planet. Even though you had done nothing wrong, Father, your mission was simple, to come rescue us, to come save us, to bring us home. So Jesus, we are humbled this morning at how you did that and the great lengths that you went to bring us home. Father, that what it meant for you to remove your robe of righteousness and put it on to us. Father, for you to to carry all of our weight, to carry all of our sins. Father, someone had to pay for that. And Jesus, you did it for us, for your glory. God, I feel so good to be home. To know that there's nothing we can do to earn your love and there's nothing we can do to rebel from your love. God, that your love knows no bounds. That you are always initiating, that you are always pursuing, you're always running after us. So Father, I pray for those in this room this morning that are trying to sound out your voice in their head. Father, that hear you calling them home, hear you wooing them back to yourself in their phrases, I've got this, I've got this, I can figure this out. I'm in control, I understand, I can do this on my own. Father, I pray this morning those would come home. Father, I pray that you would call and you would woo right now in this moment, Jesus, that, that they would come home under the love of our Father. That they would realize that this virtue of doing everything on their own is never asked or expected of us. Father, you took joy in sending your Son to pay the penalty for us. I pray for those that are just about to rebel. That they're honestly tired of the church, they're tired of Christianity, they don't see the point. And they're on the verge of walking away thinking they can do this on their own. Jesus, I'm praying that they hear your voice and they answer. That they realize that the grass is greener on the other side is just a fallacy that there's nothing for them apart from you and your love and your grace and mercy. So God, I would plead with them to stay home. Father, I also pray for the sinful older brother that, that their pride is keeping them from walking home because of their self-righteousness and their religiousness and God, I pray that they would come home, that they would see all their righteous acts are like filthy rags, that there's nothing they can do to earn or to keep your favor. But God, let us remember this morning the length of what you did to bring us home.
Father, that you were betrayed, that you were arrested, that you were tried, that you were beaten, that you were mocked, you were ridiculed, you were hung on a cross, and you died. That is the price you paid to bring us home. That grace is costly. And Jesus, it costed you everything. You gave up everything for us. And you did so out of the love for us and the love of the Father that sent you here. But Father, when you defeated death through Jesus Christ, you made all right with us. That the righteousness that you took off can now be put on us. So Jesus, let us pray that we would come home this morning, that we would celebrate, that as believers, as we take communion after I say amen, that, that we would celebrate and rejoice all that you've done for us. We, we pray that, that Jesus, if you're wooing people back home right now, that, that they would come talk to one of the elders at the communion table, that, that we could talk and we could pray with them. Jesus, because home is everything. Your presence is everything. Your peace, your love, your joy is everything. So forgive us when we rebel through pride or through sin. God, would you draw us back home? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.